Good to see you this morning. We're continuing in our study of Matthew. We're in the week of what is called the Passion of Jesus, that week that specifically has to do with his sufferings leading to the cross and the cross itself. And again, it's not that he did not experience any sufferings throughout his life. Let's face it. The life of Jesus was a life of suffering with joy. Suffering with joy. And when I say suffering, I don't mean that at every moment of his life, he was actively persecuted and attacked. But for the son of glory to take on our humanity, a body and a soul, and so condescend and experience such restrictions in every category of his existence, that's suffering of a sort. Do you know what I'm saying? It's suffering of a sort. And so we need to make sure when we look at the life of Jesus, there are levels and activities and aspects of suffering. But it is a life of condescension, of coming down, of leaving the great glory and the face of God the Father to come as a human being, as a man of weakness without sin, and then to live among us as one of us have to learn. I mean, he wasn't born with automatic information. He had to learn things. He grew up. Remember Luke 2.52, he grew in wisdom and statue of favor with God and man. So his whole life is one of total willing suffering so that we who are born into suffering because of our sin can be brought into heaven with him in the new heaven and earth where there is no more suffering. Amen. This morning we're continuing in that. And you remember it's the communion meal, the last supper as we normally call it. And we're in chapter 26, verses 17 to 19 this morning. Father, Fathers, we read these verses of this account. Father, we pray that this, as in everything, but especially this account of these hours, Father, that this will not just be another set of verses to read and to move on, but your purpose in sending the Son is reaching its climax, its crescendo, the apex. Father, where all of heaven and all of hell looks on with the greatest of intensity, 
to see the Son of God as the Son of Man, submitting to the worst and most harsh experience for the Father's glory. Father, may we read this and ask of you, seek you, and then receive from you a much deeper experience, appreciation, a wonder, a humbling of ourselves as we see this great one going through what he went through. Father, so that we could become your children for your benefit, for you are the primary beneficiary in all of this. Father, make this set of verses these next weeks absolutely personally powerful. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, on the first day, of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared for the Passover. So here we are, Jesus, and I want to make sure we see this absolutely in every detail of this event of the meal and everything that follows the meal with the arrests and with the trial and with the crucifixion, as in everything of his life, this man, if you would, This man, if you would, is absolutely and completely in control according to the will of God. There is nothing that is happening that is outside of or apart from his control. In other words, Jesus, if you would allow me to say it this way, I don't like to say it this way, but I will. Jesus is running the show. Jesus is running the show. Never fall for this thought that what we see in these verses, in this part of the account of Jesus' life, is that Jesus was cornered and he was surprised and he couldn't do it. None of that can be, that can be, it's absolutely, absolutely furthest from the truth. He is the son of glory conducting the affairs of his own life and his own death, and his own resurrection in concert with, in concert with the will of God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Can you say amen? This is a Trinitarian work as every breath of Jesus from his conception to his death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation, every aspect of Jesus' life in the incarnation is a Trinitarian work, which means what? The Father's will is being walked out 
willingly by the Son who has agreed under the power of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely all three persons are intricately, intimately, absolutely, comprehensively involved in everything here. Amen? Amen. And we have to see this. And one of the things we'll talk about when we get to the cross is, well, I don't want to jump ahead. No, I don't want to do that. Stay here, Davidson. Stay where you are. Go ahead. So go prepare for the Passover. Who's conducting the show? Jesus, you go tell him, I'm coming, whatever. He didn't say, go ask if I can eat meal. You know, go tell him. Now, whether Jesus uh, you know, arranged this before or not, I don't know, but we do know this. He's conducting the fair. Now, when we read in Luke twenty-two fifteen, we read a very interesting statement of Jesus. He says this, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, the suffering there doesn't mean that this is the first time I'm suffering, but the specificity of the suffering of the cross in relation to the act of atoning. Because everything about the life of Jesus from, the in, from, the, uh, from, from being conceived to his death is one act of atonement. Everything is. So we need to be careful. The atonement is not at the cross. The atonement begins with the conception in Mary all the way through. That cross is the crescendo of this great work of atonement. He is the atoning one from beginning to end. I know sometimes we think of the word a little differently. This is when the atonement is and this. No, it's the whole thing is the atonement. He says, I've eagerly desired. The word eagerly desired is uh, epithumia. It, it, mostly it's translated with this word lust. <gasps> epithumia is one of the five Greek words having to do with types of love. And it has to do with a very strong, passionate love for something. It doesn't always automatically mean something wrong or dirty. In and of itself, it's a neutral word where you have strong desire for something. And so lust, obviously, is a translation when it has to do with sexual things and so on because it says this is a strong, binding, kind of driving desire for that which is wrong. I think you understand that. So his, his heart, his mind, his soul is consumed with this meal, getting to this meal. Where have we seen that kind of zeal before? Remember in John 2.17, when Jesus goes into the temple, what does he do in John 2.17 in that set of verses. He goes into the temple, what? And cleanses the temple. And what do the disciples say? Oh, we remember what was written of him. Remember in the Psalms, zeal for thy house hath what? Consume me. And so the consummation of this zeal is now at hand for Jesus as he says, I have from the very beginning, essentially even from eternity, I have desired strongly to eat this meal with you. I think I'm going to get through this today. Now, why does Jesus have such a strong desire to eat this particular meal with his disciples? What is it about this meal and hopefully today we can see something about this meal that, I don't know, maybe for the first time some of us have seen this, maybe not, but at least will accentuate the centrality and the necessity of this meal. This meal that celebrates, this is the meal that celebrates and anticipates 
the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose for the creation of humanity. When in Christ, God and his people would be eternally united in intimate fellowship. This is the meal that celebrates and anticipates finally, finally, the will of my heavenly father, the purpose for which I have come into the world is going to be consummated. Finally, this is the meal that we celebrate. This is that great meal of wonderful anticipation and celebration by the Son of God. Matthew one twenty three. remember? God is with us. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, speaking of Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sin. And he says, Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 7, you remember. He, uh, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Finally, God with us. Finally, this meal is the culmination and the celebration, anticipation of what Emmanuel is all about. God with his people, his people with God, God and his people united in intimate forever fellowship. This is what is being anticipated. This is the meal that commemorates the Passover deliverance. Remember where the lamb was slain for the uh, deliverance of the people. And it commemorates the Passover deliverance by anticipating the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. They were delivered from Pharaoh into the new promised land. This is the meal that commemorates that as a type. This meal commemorates it as it's going to be the actual fulfillment. This is the meal that finalizes Jesus' earthly redemptive ministry as he prepares to be betrayed and arrested and then crucified. This is the meal that foreshadows the marriage supper of the Lamb. Remember that. When God and his people will enjoy familial, family, familial fellowship in the new heaven and the new earth. Remember Revelation 19.9. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, in the same passage in Luke 22, when Jesus said in verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal. Then in verse 20, and I know this is not Matthew, but we have to use some of the other references. In verse 20, Jesus says something that the other uh, records don't have. He says, this meal is the new covenant in my blood. Now, when you look at Matthew, it has the, the blood of the covenant, but it doesn't put the word new. It's the new covenant in my blood. Now, what is he talking about? Why does he say covenant? What is the origin and eternal significance of this covenant meal? He calls this meal the new covenant in my blood. Why does he call it a covenant? What is there about covenant? What we haven't done, I, I think, in this church is to yet, and this is the place we would do it, and I'm the one basically who would do it, so I'm not critical about this. We haven't had any lengthy discussion or teaching about covenants, and perhaps we need to do that one day, you know, to really understand what those are, but what the covenant is. But let, let's do a little bit here. So what is a covenant? Simply put, and, and you can, this can be defined in various ways. A covenant is an agreement between two or more parties or people. It's an agreement between two people or more, two parties or more, two nations or more that is entered into with the swearing of an oath and it is ratified or is sealed in blood. That's what a covenant was. 
That's what is meant by covenant. So in those days when you said enter into covenant, in 26, 28 of Genesis, you'll see the word make covenant. Well, actually the word make covenant there is to cut covenant. So when the Old Testament says they made covenant, it's a cutting. It's always bloodshedding. So when a covenant is made between two people, two parties, two nations, there is a death. There is a death. And then there are oaths and vows taken, promises made. Now, where am I? Oh, here I am. Each party swears an oath. Each party swears an oath to keep the covenant. But if the covenant is kept, I'm sorry, and if the covenant is kept, there are great blessings to the covenant. We see this in Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 to 14. All the blessings, the Lord said, if you keep my law, if you keep this covenant, if you walk according to the stipulations that you have sworn to keep, you have sworn to keep it by entering the covenant, you have said, I will obey the stipulations of the covenant. That's what you do. You're not being forced to do this. You're doing this well. As we have received Christ, we have received him with this understanding. We are receiving the life in us, and we are agreeing to obey the word of God. Amen? And so in obeying the stipulations of the covenant, there are great blessings. So you see them in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 1 through 14. However, if the covenant is broken, if there is disobedience in the covenant, then there are curses. Curses. And so the rest of the chapter in Deuteronomy from 15 to 45 is uh, the listing of all the curses. So get this in your mind. Covenant is an agreement entered into voluntarily by one who is greater to initiate coming to one who is lesser to be received willingly into the relationship through giving of oaths and the cutting of blood. I'm sorry, the cutting or the shedding of blood. That's a covenant. And when this happens, these two parties, if you would, become one united in intention, in goal, united in walking together. They become united. One of the things you hear say is the covenant of marriage. Aren't you glad, men, that there is no cutting involved in whatever, other than the cutting of your hair to make sure you look nice that day? So where did the practice come from? Because, you see, covenant was an understand, a practice that was pell-mell in the old um, ancient world. Everybody did covenant. Well, here's the explanation that I grew up with. Israel had covenant because they were practicing what everybody else had, and they adopted what everybody else had. Therefore, they had their own covenant, and they began to assume God in it and whatever. And this is their understanding of how, who God is and whatever. And it's all initiated by people because it's always been that way. Chris, it's always been that way. That's what they did. But could it be? Could it be that God in the garden, remember in the shedding of the blood and the covering of Adam and Eve, remember that? The, the clothing, the skins of an animal, Genesis 3.21. Could it be that that's the first covenant that was cut? And that covenant God set 
the concept and the principle of covenant in the mind and heart of every human being. Therefore, all the nations did it. You see, they have it backward in the natural world. The natural explanation for the word of God is always backward. It's always backward. It's always upside down. So what is the origin, though, of this? The real origin. The origin of covenant is in God himself. Now, that's the main point. This is the main point of this meal. This is the reason why Jesus is so desiring to have this covenant. This is the covenant that God, among the three persons of the Trinity, has always had in relational activity of their roles. It's called the covenant of redemption. That's just a theological term that is used here. Jesus is celebrating and anticipating the fruition of this great covenant of redemption. That's what this meal is all about. With this meal, Jesus is celebrating the fulfillment of this covenant of redemption. In this eternal covenant, this covenant which is in God himself, which is in the purpose and will of God himself, this covenant of redemption, The Son has agreed with the Father's will to create a people whom he will then need to redeem by his atoning sacrifice, propitiation for their sin, by the power of the Spirit. This is an agreement that is made in the Godhead, if you would. In the Godhead. Why? What is the purpose of this? What is the ultimate purpose in this covenant of redemption? Typically, when we ask, what is the purpose of, you know, God, Jesus coming? Well, Jesus came to save me from my sin. Is that right? Yes. Isn't it? Isn't it? That is the purpose. And I say the word purpose with little letters. That's the purpose, Bob. But I say it with little letters. Because, you see, Jesus saving us is the purpose to get to the purpose In other words, our salvation is God's means of something, is the path, if you would, of God getting to somewhere. It's not the ultimate. We have to be very careful that we do not make ourselves the ultimate of God's purpose and work. That's idolatry. God himself is the goal and the ultimate and the purpose Etc. Are you with me on this? We must remember this that in anything and everything of our lives in Christ, God is the goal. It's all about God, it's all from God, and it's all for God. Anything and everything about my life is about, from, and for God. Everything doesn't matter what it is. Makes no difference. If you're in Christ, that's who you are. John 14, 13. You remember in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, Jesus is talking to the disciples and giving them, if you would, his last earthly instruction before going out into the uh, uh, sorry, before praying and then leaving and crossing the Kidron into the Gethsemane. So these chapters, 13, 14, 15, and 16, are his last instruction. And here's what he says in 14, 13. 
all of this, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. There's the goal. You want to know why you were saved? I don't know why God saved me. Well, I can tell you why he saved you. So that he can be glorified in your salvation in Christ. It's all about God. By agreeing to be sent by the Father's will to be the sacrificial lamb for his people, the Son, by the power of the Spirit, reveals to all creation the glory of God's Trinitarian nature and character. This is what God is after. That they may know, is this is a phrase especially in so much of the New Testament, that they may know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord, that they may know. And how will they know? They will know the glory and the brilliance and the majesty and the honor and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, of who God is and especially the Father is. As the Son comes to serve the Father's purpose by submitting himself to the work of the Holy Spirit, all of it redounding to the glory of God the Father, that they may know how great I am. How great is my love. 1 John 3, 1, remember? See what love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And it sounds like we are the object. No, it's about God's love. For God so loved the world that he saved. It's about what? The unique kind of love that God has. It's about the glory of God's majesty, his love, his character, his nature. And how these three divine, distinct, equal persons, eternal persons within the community of God relate to one another through their distinct roles, all and each doing it in reference to loving one another. This is incredible. The revelation of God's Trinitarian nature and character Showing is the Father who leads the Trinity. It's the Son who serves the purpose of the Father. And it is the Holy Spirit who empowers the Son to serve the purpose of the Father. And all of that is accentuated and manifested where? In a people whom he will create and then redeem at the highest price. So in a people, he may be manifested forever. It's about God. It's about God. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ. Not glory for himself, but glory for himself. I'm sorry, only, but glory for himself that that may, that glory that he has in himself and as, as expressed in the atonement may then redound to the glory of the one who sent him. And Jesus does this by bringing a people into the intimate, loving fellowship that exists within God himself in fulfillment of Genesis one twenty six. Genesis one twenty six. let us make what? Man in our image according to our likeness. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, let me read a passage that it helps us to understand that. First Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter 1, 4. God has granted to us his precious and great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's what Genesis 126 
is going after. God's purpose in making us in his image is to bring us into that intimate fellowship with him as we are experiencing and sharing in the fellowship that God experiences within himself among the three persons. We become partakers. We become experiencing in the midst of this. We do not become of the nature of God. We do not do that. We are participating as experiencing experiencing the nature of God within our own community as a people, both here and then in heaven forever. And it is that family, intimate family fellowship that God wants for us at the highest cost of the cross. Why? So that the Father may be glorified in his people through the glory of his Son's obedience unto death as exemplified and manifested and declared, Romans 1, 5, in the resurrection. As a result, the Father's eternal purpose for having a people in his beloved Son with whom he can enjoy fellowship is achieved. Let me read this from Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority and power before all time now and forevermore. Do you see that Jude is saying here with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God the Father is the final goal, the quintessential goal of the atonement. He is the quintessential goal of the atonement. Why are we saved? Why did God save us? So that God could be manifestly glorified in us in his son's glory of saving us by the glory of the work of his Holy Spirit. All of it crescendoing where? Before the Father and unto the Father. That's what's happening. That's what this meal is all about. That's why Jesus says, whoa, I've wanted to eat this meal because finally, finally everything about me, everything about me has been that I will glorify my Father. And now we're at the place of celebrating and anticipating the consummation, the fulfillment of that eternal purpose for which we made this covenant of redemption. And finally, the Father will be manifestly glorified in his people. It's all about God. It's all about God. The Father's glory is Jesus' continual motive through his life and his ministry. Remember the prayer, John 17? Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. Chapters 14 to the end of John is called the book of glory. The book of signs, 1 to 12, all the signs, and now the book of glory. What, is, what does that mean? The book that has to do with the specificity of the coming of the glory of God and the accomplishment of the glory of God through the atonement of Christ in the resurrection as portrayed, as, as manifested in the resurrection. And so Jesus is praying in John 17, that God's eternal purpose in the covenant of redemption, essentially he's praying this, 
that God's eternal purpose in this covenant of redemption to which the Son has willingly agreed in eternity, in eternity he's agreed that I will come, subordinate myself to become a human being, and I will come to obey the will of my Father. And I will do that under the leading of the Holy Spirit. And I will do nothing in my life except being led by the Spirit. And so whatever I hear my Father say, I do. Say how? By the power of the Holy Spirit and through the Scriptures. So he's praying in John 17 for the fruition of this in various categories. And here's what he says in the first five verses. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Why, 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 why? In order that your Son may glorify you. You see how Jesus is receiving the glory to pass the glory. Receiving the glory to pass the glory to God the Father. Since you have given him, the Son of God, he's talking about himself, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. So where is the glory manifested? In the salvation of his people. This is why the church is the most important object of God's love in the universe in his Son. Because we are the only ones who can manifest the Father's glory. And, by the way, we are the only ones who can blaspheme the name of God. Nobody else can do this. Our lives will either glorify him or blaspheme him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I want the glory, Father. I want the glory. I want the glory. I want the majesty. I want the exaltation. I want the praise of all the people. Why? Why? Because in me receiving that, then it is yours. Do you see that? Jesus wants it, but not selfishly for himself. He wants it for the Father's ultimate benefit. He wants it. But why? So that I may glorify you. So that you may be glorified in me. What a selflessness in the Son of God. What a selflessness. This means that the purpose of the covenant of redemption is the glory of God the Father through the glory of the Son's love for the Father in the incarnation by the empowering presence and work of the Spirit. This is what this meal is all about, ultimately. It's not ultimately about Passover, which many churches, that's where the emphasis is. And I understand that. I, I, I understand that. The emphasis is the covenant of redemption in God himself, having always been God's intention, always, always has been God's intention, always. So the first moment that the Son of God said, let there be, in Genesis 1-1, the covenant of redemption was set into a time-framed motion. Are you with me? A time-framed motion. Because the moment the Son of God said, let, time began. Eternity began. There was no time, no eternity. It all began when he said what? Let 
That's when it all began. Before then, everything was God as present. No past, you know, everything about God, I am the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and, the, and ending and all that. That's all within a time frame. That's just something so we can understand who God is. But in himself, his essential nature and character, there is no time. There is no eternity. He just is. You understand that, don't you? <laughs> just like I understand it fully. <laughs> exactly. Right. We're all sitting there, huh? <laughs> You see, in view of this eternal covenant, we need to always keep before us in every situation. Listen to this. I've said this the other week, but listen to it. Jesus ultimately, and I hope this is in your notes, ultimately Jesus did not come into the world for us. That's where Christians miss it at a fundamental level. And that's why I think there are issues of weakness of ministry and obedience in us. Jesus' ultimate purpose, Jody, was not to come here for you. Judy, that's not why he came here. Ultimately. Coach, ultimately, no. Todd, ultimately, no. We came here for him. Ultimately. Do we see that? Let's begin to reorient our understanding of ourselves in Christ and Christ in us. And to know this, I am saved for him. Colossians 1.16. That will be a reference. Colossians 1.16. He didn't come here for you, Billy. You were born into this world according to the pre-knowledge of God's intention at a particular time, in a particular way, physically, etc., you were created into this world for him. For him. Kevin, you're here for him. Ronnie, you're here for him. Celeste, you're here for him. Jerry, you're here for him. You see, too much of our praying and ministry has to do with him here for us. Are you with me on this? That's true, Ken, but it's secondarily true. We don't want to make the secondary more important than the primary. The primary purpose is what? We are here for the glory of our Heavenly Father, having sent the Son willingly, empowered by the Spirit, so we could be His forever people. This glorious covenant is finally brought to fruition in the Lord Jesus who will gather all of God's elect into his eternal kingdom and glory. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four. Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom of God to the Father. You see, this means that every action, every word, every deed, everything that Jesus did has had its motive in bringing glory to his Father culminating in his death on the cross, everything. This is the significance of this meal. This is what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. So hopefully the next time we celebrate communion as a church, I can't speak for the rest of the church, but I speak hopefully for us in this room. This is what we're going to have in mind. And the emphasis may be on this, that, and the other, and that's fine. Those are secondary emphases. Remember the primary emphasis. 
And the next time we do communion, if you would, get the sense of celebration and anticipation in the heart and in the soul of this man, Jesus. Finally, finally, this is where I've been walking toward having this meal. And one day this meal will be celebrated in the new kingdom, having been absolutely fulfilled, this covenant of redemption. And that will be the great celebration. And by the way, there won't be an empty seat. And nobody's going to be late. And nobody's going to have excuses. Every one of God's people will be there. You see, this meal gathers up and celebrates the fruition of all the covenants that God has made with man, beginning with Adam all the way through. All these covenants that are specified in the Old Testament are gathered up and completed in this covenant that God will cut with his people in this man, Jesus Christ. So let's, next week we're going to look at some of the... Uh, Uh, stipulations of the covenant, the blessings, and the curses. Thank you.